Green Eggs and Horror content warning. Stories may contain adult language, adult situations, violence, and awesome. If you can't handle any of these things I just listed, I'd turn it off now. I'm Pete Nixon, and this is Green Eggs and Horror. Aaron Lee is the author of today's story. He's his own unique style of awesome that is beyond my limited knowledge of English to describe to you here. Let's just say, if talent had a smell, Aaron would reek of it. And now, our story. Try it. You'll like it. Oh, the People You'll Kill by Aaron Lee Read by Peter Nixon Congratulations! You've just got insane. I am the voice. The voice inside your brain. I am the voice that will show you the way. There's blood on your hands now. The cops are on their way. Go run. Go hide. I will show you the way. The voice drones on inside my head as I round the corner and run into a narrow alley. The sofa lamp across the street casts long, deep shadows and I find refuge behind an empty dumpster to catch my breath. I can hear the sirens in the distance growing louder with each thump of my heart. I want to deny what the voice said with every fiber of my being, but I can't. The voice is right. I have gone insane, and the morals that my mother raised me with are quickly being purged from my body with each word the voice says. I try to shut the voice out, and for the most part I do, but I know, somewhere deep down I know, the voice will get louder as I spin headfirst into this mess I am now in. Even at midnight, the July heat is still slow roasting in this concrete jungle, and the dumpster I now reside behind has been baking so long that it seems to be oozing a unique stench of rot and decay. I can feel the dry blood on my hands, and it starts flaking off as I open my clenched fists. I dry heave, barely containing myself as I think back over the past few minutes and try to piece everything back together. An argument. Robbie yelling. A knife. The voice starting. Blood. Lots of blood. Robbie screaming. Robbie dead. The memory comes back to me more like posed photographs rather than a cohesive thought. I try to shake the images and I begin to walk towards my apartment, sticking to the shadows. Afraid to look at my blood-soaked clothes more out of disgust than the fear of being seen. The voice tells me when to move and when I should walk or run. I don't want to listen, but I do. It is right. It seems to always be right. I know I should have power over my own psyche, to rationalize with myself so I can turn my thoughts off, but I don't. I have less power to do this than I had power not to cry the first time I saw Old Yella. I knew the dog was going to die, and no matter how much I prepared mentally, my brain still turned my tear ducts into Niagara Falls. The sirens are a chirp in the distance now as I fumble my keys from my pocket and with a shaky, blood-flaked hand open my apartment door. The door swings open and the number four that now hangs upside down rocks back and forth like a grandfather clock, greeting me in its own squeaky time. 
I shut the door and slump against it, riding its smooth surface to the floor. The emotions from just, what, an hour ago? Crash down on me like a wave, and I start to sob. Large, body-shaking sobs. I can feel the tears in the snot mixing with the dried blood, and I start to dry heave again. I don't know if I will keep it down this time, so I stumble to my feet and head towards the bathroom. I walk, almost run towards the bathroom, when I notice the kitchen light is on. I never leave my kitchen light on. I freeze, and for a moment my stomach follows suit, only to be replaced with anxiety. My first thought is the cops. The cops know what I did, and they have beat me to my apartment and have broken in waiting for me to return. The voice quells those thoughts, and I am once again greeted with Polaroid memories of the few minutes before I left to meet Robbie. Stella passed out on my bed, naked, money on the dresser, note to leave. She didn't leave. I can hear her turning the rusted handle on the shower from hot to cool to off. The dull squeak of the faucet, the same now as it was three years ago when I moved in. She is singing to herself as she shuts the shower door, and I can make out a few lines of the one and only Mr. Sinatra's Luck Be a Lady Tonight. The knot of anxiety starts to tighten in my stomach, but the voice tells me to take control, and I go rigid as I walk into the bathroom. She turns, hearing my footsteps behind her. Jackie, what the fuck? My fist connects with her throat, a solid, full-powered punch, and she drops, clutching her neck. Sick, gurgling sounds escape her lips as she stares at me wide-eyed, filled with fear and panic. I try to open my mouth to say I am sorry, but the voice takes over. I try to fight it. I really do. But I can feel that it's already more powerful than I am. And what comes out next scares me to death. If the whore is a boar, chop her in four. Leave a piece in the freezer door. The other three leave them to me, so no one will find them evermore. I watch as a leg sinks into the concrete, and I start to laugh. Laughing at the funny splat sound the leg makes when I drop it into the wet cement. It's then I catch myself. I look down and my hands are clean, and I am wearing a spotless Nike tracksuit the kind my uncle would wear. I check the time. Nearly two in the morning. I have lost the past two hours. I am not greeted with any images of this lost time. Just a black void where that time should have been. I look down again and the leg is gone. Sunk forever. Resting under the feet of all those who will walk over it. Ironic, right? The voice drifts off to the shallow depths of my brain and I start to shake realizing that the leg at one time was more than likely attached to Stella. Before my shaking turns into panic that will then no doubt turn into hysterics, my senses are dulled like a Novocaine shot from an expert dentist. I don't even realize the voice's renewed grip on my mind and body and that I don't even care anymore. I am just moving towards my car, cool as a cucumber. The moon has been obscured by the late night summer clouds that tease us with rain. The small trunk light illuminates the area around the back of the car in an otherwise pitch-black night. The gravel crunches under my feet, and the trunk makes a soft click as I close it, being careful not to slam it. Hey, you! What are you doing here? The man's voice is young. Early twenties, I would guess. A rent-a-cop, no doubt. My adrenaline kicks in and starts to override the numbing of the voice.
I turn and am now blinded by a flashlight just a few feet away. I raise my hand to shield my eyes as he moves from the front of the car, and I can see his hand on his hip. I raise both of my hands to the side of my head, but his hand doesn't move. Just checking on the project, officer. I say, squinting, trying to see past the flashlight. At two in the morning? I don't think so. How about you step over this way? Look, I was just on my way out. And it has been a long night. You and half this drunk community have had a long night. Now move this way slowly. I can just make out his silhouette beyond the flashlight, and my heart sinks when he looks over at the wet cement. He draws his gun, a lot quicker than a -a rent-a-cop should be able to, and the voice starts directing my next moves. Don't mess up. As you already know, the game is afoot. Get ready for the show. Be sure to watch your step. Make sure each is exact, for you decide how his family will react. Keep your hands up where I can see them. His tone has gone all business, and I do what he asks. He turns the flashlight off and holsters it in a fluid motion while turning on a tactical light mounted to his gun. The narrow beam allows me to make out more of his face, and his indifferent stare almost frightens me. Almost. I was right. He is young. Young enough to be my kid brother. My hands stay next to my head as I hear him pull out a pair of handcuffs. I can feel the voice take full charge again, and I am now watching all this play out like a Bourne movie. He slaps a cuff over my wrist, and I wince a little from the metal striking bone. He tightens the first cuff around my wrist and, as if the heavens opened, or more like in my case the gates of hell, his shoulder mounted mic squats making him jump, just a little, just enough. I watch as my free hand slams into his right forearm making his arm go instantly slack, and he drops the gun. My other hand grabs a free cuff dangling from my wrist, and using it like a set of brass knuckles, I crunch the bone in his nose. He tries to swing at me with his left arm, but I step back and his hand misses my face by an inch. I can see from the tech light on the fallen gun that his nose is gushing blood, but I don't stop. The voice is cheering me on, urging me to continue and I no longer see where I end and the voice begins. Growing up, I was always the scrawny kid whose ears were too big and had teeth that seemed too large for my face. In other words, I was a kid all the bullies and the regular kids picked on. I always had my jokes to defuse many situations, but I also had an amazing ability to coax these kids over the edge. And more times than not, my face showed the results. With a bag of frozen peas resting over my right eye, my mom came into my room and her next words stick with me to this day. Jackie, the key to any fight is to end it fast and in any way possible. Nothing is off limits when you're fighting for your life. The next time one of those little chubby bastards pick on you, kick him in the balls and see how much they like that. I miss you, Ma. My leg cocks back and I feel my Nike connect squarely with his groin. The man drops to his knees, one hand on his broken and bloodied nose, and the other on his broken boy bits. The gun is now in my hand as I feel the warm spray on my face as I fire a shot into the top of the man's skull. You did it, kid. No regret in sight. This is the night. A good night to fight. 
I leave him laying in the cold dirt and drive off, looking only once in my rearview mirror at the body laying motionless on the ground. I have to be more careful, or else they will find me. Gunshots at two in the morning are bound to draw attention. Streetlights keep good time as the deserted streets beckon me to drive. Now the voice is a constant companion, now rambling and muttering. At moments when I feel its grip loosening on my body, I try to break free, but it instantly digs its claws in deeper and we drive faster. The radio thumps out a melancholy techno beat and I glance down at the rising speedometer. The car is purring at nearly 90 miles per hour, and it seems so is the voice. The speed, the rage, and the excitement set the voice at ease, and for the first time since its soft voice whispered in my mind and I drove a knife into Robbie, I think I may not be crazy after all. I try and listen to the voice, but it's muttering and incomprehensible, so I try and feel it. Immediately I can feel the insatiable need for death and destruction, and I can feel the voice inside my head like a parasite feeding off a host. At that exact moment, I know that I am not crazy, but I am being held hostage by this, this thing, which is warming its way into me to feed off the mayhem it has created. Red and blue lights flash behind the car, and the voice seizes control once again, but this time I let it willingly. The other times when the voice fought its way into control, it locked me down in that steel-clad grip. This time I can feel that the walls are as weak as a house of straw, and I am the wolf. I can only think of one way to remove a parasite from a host, so I sit back and let the voice drive. We weave in and out of the streets as I watch in the rearview mirror as more and more lights join the chase. The voice slams down on the brakes as a cop approaches on the rear and attempts to tap our back end into a spin. We slam into the cop car, and I make eye contact with the driver. I can see the gun in my hand. Three shots ring out, and the passenger side window explodes in a hail of glass, sending shrapnel all over the cab. The cop's face disappears in a shower of glass and blood, and the cop car swerves and smashes into a parked car. This is my chance. I glance in my rear view mirror and see at least six cop cars quickly approaching. I can feel my adrenaline overpowering the voice's control, and I slam on both the emergency and standard brake at the same time. I jerk the gear shift from drive to park. I can feel the talons of the voice scratching at control while the car screeches to a halt. I throw the keys out of the shattered passenger window and look down at the gun in my hand. It's then that I can let the voice have full control again. I can feel the voice's anger towards me, its shock at its host's betrayal and the excitement and fear of its current situation. I watch from inside my prison, hoping that the voice will just end it all with a single bullet to the brain. I see several cops coming towards the car, and several more opening the door to the wrecked cop car. I watch as the voice throws the door open, and we step out of the vehicle. Shots abrupt, and I see a police officer's peaked hat tumble off his head, and a line of blood sprout forth from his forehead. I feel a burst of warmth on my left shoulder followed by a white-hot pain so excruciating that my legs start to give out. Another blossom of pain flowers out around my right hip, followed by a rose-red burst of color in the center of my chest. I try to breathe, but the air around me is refusing to enter my body. My head cracks on the asphalt and the stars in the sky go all kaleidoscope. The world slowly spins, 
getting darker and darker with each full circle. Shadows cloud my vision, and I can feel my heart pumping the last few seconds of life out of my body, and it is then that I can feel it, the voice relinquish its claws on me. The world once again becomes brighter, and my thoughts seem to be mine once again. They say that just before death, your life flashes before your eyes. Well, if that is the case, then my life flashed by so fast I didn't even catch a glimpse of it. But in that final second of life, I realized that I had won. I had beat this thing. I can feel tears running down my face as my heart stops. My head lulls to the side and my vision comes to me in brief pulses. Like a dark night illuminated momentarily by a bolt of lightning. In those brief flashes I can see the shadow dance across the pavement towards the police officers. The shadow creeps and crawls like a cat hunting its prey. A thin, dark tendril twitches like a cat's tail before it strikes. The police are approaching, talking in low tones one to another, but I don't hear them. One of the police officers pauses, looking down at me, anger clearly visible on his face. The shadow leaps onto the officer, winding its way up and into him, and then it's gone. My vision fades to black. about the story. Aaron was born on a dark and stormy night in the middle of July in Idaho. Bats circled the belfry as the clock struck eight, signaling his birth. Aaron's imagination from that day forth has spewed forth stories, songs, poems, and epic awesomeness. His story was inspired by his love of Oh, the Places You Will Go and the movie Drive. Green Eggs and Horror is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, U.S. license. That means you can give it away and share it however you like, but don't take credit for it or sell it. Davin Creed wrote and produced the intro music, as well as the soundtrack for today's story. The outro music was written and produced by Heather Nixon. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in a physical copy or a digital copy, you can find Green Eggs and Horror on Amazon, Kindle, and on greeneggsandhorror.com.